0: the hearing a legal podcast from Thomson
1: reuters my desire for the law came from my heroes at the time my heroes at the time were people like gandhi a lawyer um nelson mandela a lawyer the fictional heroes like atticus and killer mockingbird these were people who helped people who were with you know without power and without influence and did so in such a way that Ultimately, they were able to change not just the lives of those people, but more widely. And, you know, I realised that law is a tool for change. It's not just words on a piece of paper. If you use it properly, you can ultimately change people's lives so much more for the better.
0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of The Hearing Podcast. My name's Yasmin, and it's great to have your company. Today, we're talking to my guest, Nazir Abzal. And you may have heard that name Nazir is an OBE he has an extensive or had an extensive career at the CPS and he's recently written his book called The Prosecutor. So Nazir told us about his career journey and also the experiences he's had of racism whilst growing up and during his time at the CPS some of the cases he had to deal with. What I enjoyed about this episode particularly, and I hope you will too, is his sense of justice, his sense that he is the person who needs to do this job, despite the fact that it's come at a a real personal cost in terms of uh, relationships, um, family, um, his security. But he really feels that he's the person to speak up for those people who don't have a voice. And I must mention, please be aware, we are talking about issues of violence and abuse of a sexual nature. So if you have been affected by any of these issues, then please be aware of that. The hearing. Nazir Afsal, it's fantastic to have you on. Um, and I just wanted to first ask you, where does this thirst for justice come from that you seem to have?
1: I'm absolutely certain it comes from um, my parents, um, from my, my early days, um, I'm a son of an immigrant. They came here from uh, northern Pakistan uh, to seek opportunities for their children. And I was born in Birmingham and it was a time, quite frankly, when um, racism was extremely overt. We, there were skinheads on the street, there were stickers and posters. Uh, there was um, tremendous anger um, and violence aimed at people who were different. And I was one of those people who was different. And uh, additionally, um, you know, I was relatively bright. So um, we didn't have access to um, the search engines that we have now. And my Google was my library. So I spent a lot of time reading um, books. They ended up being books of the types such as To Kill a Mockingbird or, uh, you know, books that were about change and about life and how people who were um, suffering ultimately were able to obtain justice. I have no doubt that all of that paid a part, as did my parents who were extraordinary people. They had no education at all. Um, my father decided that he would set up a community group for all the people from uh, Northern Pakistan, the Bataans, and that's now still going 50 odd years later. Uh, my mother saw her role as uh, uh, supporting the new women who had come over from, uh, pakistan um she would be walking around the streets popping in for cups of tea carrying me and my uh, my siblings on her back or in the pushchair mm. and um all of that um, seeing them helping other people um undoubtedly played a part in my development
0: and mm. um, what what was it like in your household then growing up was it a busy house people coming and going you said your father helped a lot of
1: people absolutely there was um I'm, I'm, I was one of seven um, and I was right in the middle so I had three older brothers who were born abroad and I was the oldest born here and I had three younger siblings and uh, we only had a, a tiny terraced house and so we were sharing you know, rooms, three of us to a room. It was a loving environment. Uh, it was my safe zone. The moment I walked out the door it was very different but when you were in the house um, you, you, know, you couldn't get away from it. Um, a sense of family and a sense of community. And people did come to us because of my father and my mother's roles. Uh, people would always come in and ask for help in the sense of, could you write a letter to X, Y, Z? And when I became old enough to write, mm-hmm. um, my father would ask me to write these letters on behalf of members of the community to you know doctors or local authorities, whatever it may be. you know. And that, I think, um, made, gave me a sense of community and gave me a sense of family, which has stayed with me all my life.
0: Mm. And I know you were bullied as a child, and you, you you've touched on uh, the racism that was rife in in the sixties as you were growing up in Birmingham. Do you think that had uh, a role to play in, in your sense of justice for victims and and um, you know fighting for them? Do you think that played a part as well?
1: Absolutely. Um, the, I was a victim, uh, and mm. I can't imagine there were many that weren't. You know, I, when you left the house on a Saturday afternoon. If you wanted to, um, the football fans were going past my home, you come back covered in spit, uh, you'd have been abused. Um, there are instances you know, where I was attacked. Uh, one instance I was attacked by three men who used my head as a football. Um, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that um, I understood what it felt like to a victim and also a victim that wasn't being listened to. I remember um, my father telling me, you know, don't bother reporting this to the police. The police aren't interested in us. Um, you know that sense of injustice um, uh, and mm. the fact that victims weren't being responded to uh, clearly uh, was my own experience, and therefore when later in life I had the opportunity to listen to other victims, I understood exactly where they were coming from.
0: Mm, mm. and what what is it that attracted you to the law? how did how did you get into the law um, t- tell us a little bit about that.
1: Uh, I, th- I think anybody who's a uh, child of an immigrant around about that time would appreciate that their f- their families, particularly my family, were saying to me, Nazir, don't bother uh, with the law. You, you want to learn, become a doctor or an engineer or a mechanic or a scientist mm-hmm. because they were always at the back of their mind thinking at some point they're going to chuck us out and we're going to have to return to um, their, their family home. And yeah, you know, we need to have skills that are useful back in Pakistan rather than um, the law, crying out loud, we have plenty of lawyers. And so um, it was a bit of a, uh, a challenge really uh, for me to, first to persuade my parents, but secondly, my I think my desire for the law came from my heroes at the time. My heroes at the time were people like Gandhi, mm. a, a lawyer, um, Nelson Mandela, a lawyer. Um, I mentioned uh, the fictional heroes like Atticus and To Kill These were people who Helped people who were with you know, without power and without influence, and did so in such a way that ultimately they were able to change not just the lives of those people, but more widely. And you know, I realize that law is a tool for tool for change. It's um, you know, it's it's not just words on a piece of paper. If you use it properly, mm-hmm. you can ultimately change people's lives so much more for the better. Mm.
0: and was it always criminal law that you were particularly interested in or, or did you have other interests of illegal areas or was it always criminal
1: uh no initially um, when you're qualifying as a lawyer you have to do a bit of everything so um, yeah, sure. in the early days i was doing a bit of everything and i must admit i found it very, very um, I realised that criminal law was my inter- well, the area I was interested in because I had some. When I went home in the evenings, I could talk about stuff, and I think yeah. that that will interest other people. You know, we, we as a human beings are interested in crime and whatever. Uh, mm. But when I was talking, when I was doing commercial law, I had nothing to talk about. Um, <laughs> so uh, I have quickly found out that um, you know I always say to people follow your passion, follow what you're interested in, and criminal law interested me uh, <laughs> uh, to the point where you know I real I understood it it really resonates with everybody you don't have to explain in great detail what you do to people when, uh, do when you when you talk to people um so it was a pretty much a no-brainer for me um initially i started off as a defense lawyer um because i realized i mean that was where you learn your trade i guess and uh, and i'm very grateful to the, to the more senior lawyers around me who taught me so much uh, but it wasn't for me that's when it clearly wasn't for mm. me because i remember i mean i write about one instance in my memoir where you know I'm dealing with a a rape suspect and this -hmm. is a time when before um, rape victims would would give their evidence on video she had made a written statement and I'm sitting there in the the police station advising my client who's the suspect reading to him the statement of the victim and I could see that he was actually enjoying it and I thought I can't do this Mm -hmm. you know we all value we all need people who represent us uh, we were all you know they're really important but for me that wasn't the direction i wanted to go in and so pretty much immediately afterwards i decided that uh, i wanted to go into prosecution
0: and so nazir you joined the cps in 1991 and um i think that most people will will know you mostly from the work as a, as a prosecutor do you want to tell us a little bit about um, some of the cases that you're involved with. I think the big case is obviously the, the Rochdale scandal. What was your involvement in that? Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Probably during my career, a 25-year career, I must have dealt with about a million cases and um, you know, I managed hundreds of staff and they were doing phenomenal work on my behalf as well on you know, on our behalf. Uh, I think people need to understand what a prosecutor, prosecutor is. prosecutor mm in the United Kingdom, independent of the government, independent of the state, independent of every other agency, uh, decides whether or not people should be charged, decides whether or not those cases should be got to court, make sure all the evidence is lined up, make sure that the witnesses and victims are properly supported and ultimately presents the case uh, before a court uh, or a jury in some cases. So uh, with the more serious cases. So that, in essence, is what my role was pretty quickly. Uh, I, about 10 years in, I became uh, ch- assistant chief in London. Um, I was the youngest assistant chief or chief grade in, in the country, the first from a Muslim background. And yeah. very quickly, um, I realized that actually prosecuting cases uh, is a failure because somebody's already been harmed. Surely we should be working to prevent harm in the first place. And so I decided that it was more important, or as important, to start engaging with the communities, the public, to understand what they were concerned about. And I remember a particular incident, actually, in the late 90s, yes, when I was prosecuting them, um, a pair, couple of parents who'd been sexually abusing their children. And they'd actually recorded the abuse of their children. And oh, when, I was, when I was presenting the trial or presenting the case, you know, I'm watching the 18-month-old baby being raped by the father. Um, you cannot go home that evening and and just pretend life is the same Mm. Um, and it became obvious to me that life that my job was a mission not just a vocation and so Mm. I decided to look for the crimes that were hidden in plain sight the crimes that we were happening but weren't necessarily registering with wider society so I dealt with I began dealing with uh, honor-based violence and forced marriage I dealt with um, stalking, harassment, violence against women and girls, more generally, all these types of crimes that uh, are so prevalent in society, but really we're not getting either the attention or the recognition they deserved. And where well, you mentioned the whilst you're grooming case, well, that's mm-hmm. one example of a case where, um, a, a young girl walks into a, a restaurant, um, and she starts smashing it up. She then discloses when she's arrested that she's been raped by the men in that Restaurant. Um, a very poor investigation takes place during which police and prosecutors decided that she was not credible enough, that she had come from a very chaotic and troubled background, and therefore she's uh, no court would believe her, which is a terrible judgment to make, but one they made, and nothing ever happened. And so the perpetrators then go on and think, well, actually we're now immune from prosecution, and they start abusing many more. And by the time it came to me in 2011, there were 47 girls that had been abused by this group of men with impunity because they felt that they were beyond the law. Um, so I uh, became chief in the North West of England. Uh, I became aware of this case. I decided um, for the first time in my career that I would reverse a decision taken by other prosecutors because it felt wrong to me that uh, we had we'd have made a judgment about her credibility based on what? What? Prejudice. you know, Prejudice mm-hmm. against working class left behind young women. And uh, then, having done that, um, I saw that prosecution through to its conclusion um, to the point where, and it was every because of the ethnicity of the perpetrators, they were all from British Asian, British Pakistani backgrounds, yeah. and the girls that were known at that time were from British white backgrounds. The case became a very core celebre for um, the far right, so they were outside of court every day demonstrating. It became exploited by them um so we had to deal with them we had to deal with defense lawyers who were determined to try and um, bring this case down but on behalf of their clients we had to deal with victims who had never trusted adults in their lives quite rightly so given what adults have mm. done to them uh and we got it to conviction and then suddenly i hadn't appreciated the impact it would have um you know the government the uk government and I thought everybody wanted to know what was going on, why is this happening in our midst? Why are children being abused? Somehow it has completely missed people. People have just turned a blind eye to it. Uh, And uh, so I wrote about it extensively. Um, I tried to explain. People wanted to um, simplify it and say this is about, you know, Asian men or migrants doing um, nasty things to but actually that, that whilst that was, that was an issue, no, it wasn't the issue, the issue was, how is it that these vulnerable young girls had been completely and utterly left behind by the state? And it le- opened up a real kind of worms because the whole issue of child sexual abuse became no, number one priority of a government. Uh, and I had the privilege of leading it. I've had the privilege of leading the response, ensuring that other prosecutors brought other prosecutions, victims felt confident about coming forward and ultimately the justice was delivered and many, many hundreds of victims were finally being listened to in in ways that previously they'd been completely ignored.
0: Mm. Oh, you've said a lot there, Nazir, which I'd really like to unpack with you. So I've been re-watching Three Girls, which is on Netflix. For our listeners who haven't watched that, I highly recommend watching that. And I know, Nazir, you were a consultant, weren't you, for
1: that series, well, which I'm actually in it, aren't I? So, uh, and you're actor, actually in it, exactly.
0: Yeah, and the
1: actor who plays me is much more handsome than I am, <laughs> but um, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's my case, and um, it was a testament to the BBC and the production team that they went into they spent a long time researching it, and that included mm. speaking to victims to make it as real as possible. And that explains why it was so successful in terms of both ratings and awards.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's I'm rewatching it last night, actually, again, but it's a very uncomfortable watch. But I think it's a, a necessary watch for people. And what struck me, Nazir, is the failings at every level for these girls. You know, the language that the people use with them saying, you know, this is your lifestyle choice or referring to them as prostitutes. And I wonder, do you think the law? Is actually adequate in getting justice for, for victims now? Have we changed our language? Are we changing the way we think about um, these kind of girls coming from, as you say, chaotic and troubled backgrounds sometimes?
1: We, we made immense progress in the early part of the uh, first decade, second decade of this century. So around about 2012, after Rochdale. For the next three or four years, we made immense progress. Um, you know, there were there were some there are some extraordinarily high-profile prosecutions brought of people in power, people in influence. Um, uh, we, by the time I left the Crime Prosecution Service in twenty fifteen, we had the highest conviction rate for the abuse of children uh, in our history. So we made mm. massive strides, and that was about you know guidance being updated. That's about specialist teams being engaged, trained, supported. That's about victims and support groups being involved in in um, ensuring that um, people give their best evidence and about changing the system by which the trial takes place. We didn't need to change the law. The laws were always there. The laws mm. just hadn't been applied properly. Uh, you know, a law is, as I said at the right at the outset, just a tool. Um, it's the human beings that apply the law that where the work needs to happen. So we did an enormous amount of work, which really did make a difference. The only issue I have now, and uh, most victims groups will tell you the same, is mm. we've gone backwards over the last four or five years, largely to do with resourcing and largely to do with the loss of experience, people retired, people resigned, people moved on and they weren't replaced. And so victims who suddenly felt confident about coming forward came forward and aren't getting the same level of support and, and justice as they were just only five years ago. So that's a terrible crying shame. Um, mm. But it doesn't mean that we can't go back to the success that we had. Uh, in the early parts uh, of the last decade. Mm.
0: And you mentioned before, I mean, some of these cases are harrowing, they're very upsetting. And you mentioned, you know, watching an 18 month old being raped. I mean, that that will never leave you. How could it? How how do you keep mentally resilient? What, What are the skills a prosecutor needs to have to keep going, really?
1: I don't think a prosecutor is any different. I mean, obviously I see things that hopefully others would never have to see. Um, I do see the worst of us, but I also see the best of us. I see people who are courageous and brave, and I see people who are dedicated and passionate. Um, you know the experts in this world, or the NGOs that work with survivors and victims. They are—they know more about this subject and these subjects than anybody else. And we just start listening to them. Uh, where does my resilience come from? Mm. I suspect it comes from my family. Um, you know, um, you know. If, again, if you read my memoir, *The Blood you will know uh, that I, you know, my eight-year-old cousin died in my arms. Um, my um, spoiler alert: uh, my uncle was murdered by the IRA. Um, Um, I've had death and destruction around me pretty much all of my life and uh, then even during my professional life, I I ended up on an Al-Qaeda death list, Uh, I remain still on that Al-Qaeda death list. Uh, I've had far right demonstrations and thugs outside of my door, I've had panic alarms in my house, I've had police protection, Uh, my children have had to be protected, I've had Tires slashed up, and glass roof broken, uh, mm. do you not think, at some point, you're going to think, well, okay, right, this is the price that I have to pay, my, my family should never have to pay it, but mm. this is the price that I have to pay for putting my head above the parapet and dealing with things that, quite frankly, have to be dealt with, and that perhaps others chose not to. Mm. Mm.
0: And you mentioned as well that, um, I think this is in your memoir, actually, about women or it may have been in your ted talk which i thoroughly enjoyed by the way um where a group of women came to you and said about the issue of forced marriage um and you set up i think the world's first conference on this issue can you tell us a little bit about that and and what came out of the conference and what the state is of play is it in terms of honor honor um killings and forced marriages um i
1: don't think anybody had Understood uh, what crimes were happening in plain sight, and so I opened the door to victim survivor groups. One of whom was Karma Nirvana, which is the now is a national um, charity supporting victims of honor based about honor based violence and forced marriage. And they said, Nazir, look, nobody's talking about this subject. We're dealing with victims on a daily basis, hourly basis, and nobody's talking about this. So I organized what I thought was the country's first conference. I subsequently learned it was the world's first conference on the subject. I did so directly opposite parliament in order to engage with parliamentarians. They, you know, they're really lazy parliamentarians, so I'll make it easy for them. It's, we're across the road, come in and listen to a victim or a survivor when you can, and they did good luck to them. And then once we had opened that, that can and once we had an understanding of what the issues were, namely male power, male control, women's choices being limited, um, it was then necessary to change how we dealt with this, and by we I mean everybody. So uh, I made sure that the Home Office, the UK Home Office, uh, arranged a working group made up of other government departments, which looked at the issue. We defined the terms for the first time in our history. Uh, we um, produced national guidelines for every agency, and by that I mean every agency, because you know, a victim of, say, honour-based abuse or forced marriage may not have the wherewithal or the courage to go into a police station. She may go to, I don't know, a town hall or a doctor's surgery um, and talk about her experience. So therefore, everybody has to have some understanding of what they're doing. If they fail to do that, they could put, put that young girl at greater risk. And I'll give you a good example. Mm-hmm. Samara, Samara Nazir was a young girl from London who was well-educated. Her family did not like the fact that she was in a relationship with a, a refugee. Um, so her mother took her to that refugee on 10 o'clock uh, in the morning and said to that refugee, would you please tell her you don't love her anymore? And she said, well, he said, how can I tell her I don't love her when I do? Two hours later, she was stabbed 18 times in the presence of two infant nieces who were slapped, who were splattered with her blood. Two hours. Now, just imagine. Now, if somebody come to you, seek help and said, look, I'm in real danger. And you said to them, come back tomorrow. Well, let me tell you, there won't be a tomorrow. So that Mm. required every agency to up their game, and it's a credit to every agency. I spent most of uh, 0708 traveling in the country, talking to local authorities, um, doctors, midwives, you name it, every agency, to get them to understand what their responsibilities were because it is everybody's responsibility. And, uh, you know, we made massive strides. We went from a situation where in 04, 05, we had 12 homicides that we knew about that were honor-related uh, down to where it is now, something like four or five a year. So we've saved half a dozen lives a year, every year. And then add to that the number of protection orders. We created something called forced marriage protection orders in 2018. 2008 and 3,000 plus have been given to children and women and girls and men um, in Mm. that time so that's 3,000 lives that we have changed by just a small law change Mm. now that tells you what you can do when you all focus on something and it started in a conference in Westminster 16 years ago Mm
0: -hmm. and do you think because you're a a British Muslim do you think that women from those communities trust you because you have that understanding of, of the culture and the community and you think that helps as well?
1: I think it helps, um, not just women. I think men and potential perpetrators. Yeah. Um, no, they can't pull the wool over my eyes, and mm. I think that it does help having having that background. But I, you know, I've de- I deliberately make the point that uh, you know I've dealt with honor-based forced marriage, for example, in the traveller community. I've dealt with forced marriage involving. Um, Strongly held Catholic beliefs um, uh, with Eastern European and Brazilian, so it's not just exclusively Asian or Muslim mm. communities. Um, what I think I, as I go back to what I said earlier on: the victim survivor groups, those who are really brave and courageous and work uh, for nothing, really supporting victims. They have trusted me, and that gives me the credibility that they have. Uh, I just, I just ride on their shoulders and. Uh, I'm thankful every day for the fact that they have trusted me. Uh, And I'll give you another example. I prosecuted a a, a rape case of a BBC presenter um, Mm. called Stuart Hall. And he was found guilty of the abuse of 12 women and girls um, going back three decades. But he was found not guilty of the abuse of one woman. And I went to that woman now in her thirties, but she was allegedly abused as a child. and I said to her, I'm really sorry that I couldn't give you closure. And she looked me in the eyes and she said, Nazir, you gave me closure the moment that you believed me. At Mm. the end of the day, a judicial outcome is not the be all and end all. You know, somebody Mm. going to prison is great if the evidence is there. But ultimately, what a victim wants is to be listened to, to be believed, and then for it to be properly investigated.
0: Mm. And I think that's a skill you really do possess, that empathy, uh, listening to people, uh, listening to their voices.
1: It's the most underrated skill of a leader in any environment. I mean, not just crime and justice. Leaders are really good, as, as I have learned to be, in talking. Uh, we're very good at maybe assembling facts and presenting evidence. Uh, what we need to do more of and be better at is listening, because um, you can hear, for example, a victim doesn't tell you straight away they've been abused. What you have to do first is build a rapport build a relationship with them and mm-hmm. that is where your empathy and your sensitivity comes in and that's where your listening skills come in very very useful um, and we don't do enough of it but it's not just listening yes it's also about acting upon what you heard yeah you, know, you, you 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 trust is not just simply thank you for telling me what's happened trust is i will now do something based on what you've happened what you told me um, you can lose trust as quickly as you've gained it if you don't act upon what you've heard
0: yeah, yeah. And um, what are you doing now, uh, Nazir? What what keeps you busy now?
1: Uh, a, a number of things. I decided some while, a while ago that I'd want to, uh, a portfolio career, as they say. It's all in safeguarding and protecting. So mm-hmm. I'm uh, chair of a uh, of a further education college, um, uh, which has four and a half thousand, five thousand young people who are who may have been failed by the mm-hmm. normal education system. I am chair of the Catholic churches safeguarding agency a brand new agency which protects victims or will protect victims of uh, clerical abuse i am a national advisor to the welsh government on violence against women domestic abuse sexual violence i'm a member of the press standards organization uh, independent organization that reflects upon and decides upon complaints against national newspapers Uh, i am an author (laughs) of the prosecutor Mm. and i'm also writing uh, my second commission Uh, for later next year and uh, you know I'm just really fortunate that I'm working in fields where I'm one one, immensely passionate about Mm. and two where I feel I can make a difference and uh, you know my that's all I want is to leave a legacy where I feel I've helped people Um, you know it doesn't pay as well as perhaps some professions do uh, I'm sure it doesn't Um, so I'm not doing it for the pay I'm Mm. not doing it for the kudos uh, I'm simply doing it because I get every day, Yasmin, people contacting me saying, mm-hmm. "Can you help me?" And I try my best to help them.
0: Yeah. So you sound very much like your your parents, and it's exactly what what they did.
1: Yeah, on a different level, perhaps in a different yeah. way, but absolutely uh, every single day um, they woke up and did a full time job. Or in my mother's case, you know, full time caring, uh, mm-hmm. but also important to help other people who were less fortunate in their in their eyes.
0: Mm. Well, it, it, I don't know how you cram everything in your day. I know on Des- you were on Desert Island Disc, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And uh, I thought your choice of music was great, by the way, probably because it's the same taste as mine. But anyway, maybe I'm being biased. But I think your um, luxury item, was it a guitar, if I remember correctly? Yeah. It correct? yeah. yeah. Do, do you get a chance to tinker with the guitar?
1: I, I did. I mean, I, I was I taught myself several years ago, and I don't do as much as I used to. Uh, I'm really proud of my one of my sons who's taught himself to, to play various guitars, mm. uh, and uh, in many respects, I'm living my life vicariously through my children now. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, my my eldest has just graduated in law, and she's qualifying as a lawyer. And uh, my others, my other children are doing their following their passions in music and film, mm. and um, and politics and you know it's really important to me that my children uh do what they want to do rather than what perhaps i was told i should do back back in the day um uh, mm-hmm. but i don't you know i'll be honest with you I've, I've made some sacrifices and the sacrifices i've made particularly for example around friendships um i felt mm-hmm. not i didn't feel able to make really close friendships outside of my family because um in the i didn't want to talk about my work do you want me to talk about 18-month-old children being raped? No, you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you hold, you know, generally you hold that back, why well, hold that back? Um, and additionally, people would constantly come to me and ask me and say, look, my problem. My brother's in trouble, my sister's in trouble. Uh, and there isn't a lot I can do uh, when, um, you know, there are plenty of other lawyers out there, thankfully, um, for to help them, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think I drew a line with sort of the friendships I would make. Um, but I'm absolutely delighted that I, I'm, I have uh, the family that I have, the support I have, uh, and the ability Continue to bring change. I always say that to make a difference, you have to act differently. And mm. I wake up every day um, with a, a passion to see if I can do something different today that might help somebody mm.
0: somewhere. So you, you help so many people, but Nazir, if you need help about something or you need to emotionally unload, who who is it you do turn to?
1: Uh, I, my wife and my family a little bit, um, mm. but I'll be honest with you. I, I think I've, I've self. Uh, this is part of my resilience I guess uh, it's not mm-hmm. something i recommend uh, I don't hold it in I, I, you know, I, I will but I, I, I somehow will process things in in isolation without the need to consult or talk to people I have mentors I've coaches yeah. i've had coaches in the past um, with whom I will sometimes share um, feelings um, but I, I think that um, i I've, I've, that's one area where i feel i have let myself down a little bit is that I've never been able uh, to talk and share what really happens in my head, um, mm-hmm. but but that's a, you know we can't all be perfect. And at the same time, we can't. It's a sacrifice that clearly I've had to make.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like a survival mechanism because I know as a young boy, when you experience racist abuse when it was really bad, you shielded your parents from some of the worst of you know uh, assaults that you suffered and the bullying because they had their own um Absolutely. issues to deal with so perhaps that's carried on
1: why would i burden them with with given all the burdens they had so um when my mm. when my jacket gets ripped by some bullies or when i am attacked and spat at, do i talk to them every single time no i learned mm. how to sew and sewed my jacket back on in the hope that nobody would notice but more importantly i didn't want them to feel that i was under attack in some way um when i knew that they had made you know they lived through partition you know they would lived through the worst excesses of humankind um uh, why would i why would what happens to me um be something that i would want to burden them with when i can yeah. when i can hopefully as i'd be able to do anyway cope mm. with it myself
0: yeah so we're just coming to the end nazir of this interview and i i you say you don't share everything sometimes to protect people but we're so grateful that you have shared so much of your life with us I wanted to end with this. If any of our listeners, we get got a lot of lawyers listening to this podcast, if they wanted to uh, become a prosecutor and they feel inspired by your journey, what three skills do you think a good prosecutor should have to do this work?
1: I think you need to train yourself. I mean, you mentioned earlier on em- empathy and sensitivity, those are, mm. that's one skill. You know, the, um, and that comes from the other skill, which is listening. You know, you really need to be able to shut down your mouth (laughs) and (laughs) listen and listen to what you are being told, and really listen. Sometimes the words don't give you what people are really want to tell you. Um, And I think the third skill is to be able to order what you've heard in such a way that you can communicate it. Lawyers are so fixated with legal language, which, quite frankly, distances us from. The people that we serve, we need to speak to people in the language that they understand and they appreciate. So, order what you say, so that you are communicating it appropriately to the right people at the right time. Uh, But you know, I I said it a a, a moment ago. You know, whatever area you choose to work in, you know, follow your passion. Don't Mm -hmm. just do something because it pays the bills or more. It pays you more than somebody else. Whatever it may be, you know, uh, you know. Ask yourself what legacy do you want to leave Um, and if it's going to be about protecting the most vulnerable, well then pursue that with you.
0: Lovely. Thank you so much Nuneer Afzal, we're so grateful for your time. Thank you.
1: Thank you. The Hearing.
0: Thank you so much for listening and as ever we would love to hear your feedback. Like and subscribe. And also, if you've got any thoughts, if you think about topics you want us to explore, or maybe you want a guest to be interviewed and you're dying for them to be interviewed, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash The Hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.